And welcome again to uh, Class on the Bunker. Um, I think we're actually going to get ready to discard this class on the bunker idea because sometimes through this entire crisis period, we're, we're recording this in July, um, we've kind of been in this state of holding our breath and then at some point we're going to exhale when everything goes back to normal. And you start getting this feeling that it's going to continue to go on longer and we just need to start being able to go on with our life and so we're coming out of the bunker and this is just going to be our virtual class uh, online and we're going to charge on forward um, and be able to have uh, to talk about the things that we want to be able to talk about to a much wider audience than we were able to do when we were simply a class uh, sitting in the chapel quietly on a Monday morning um, and now we're all of what we are. Uh, thank you for all of you who are uh, joining us, the hundreds that are, are uh, participating with this. And thank you for those of you who, when you get on, you check in and let us know where you're coming from and, and the many states that uh, are actually kind of being represented with this, uh, with this class. So thank you <coughs> for all of that. Now, then, as, as we... Uh, Get going. Uh, just a reminder that if it, those who just want to listen to it, if you go on to Apple Podcasts, you can get it on uh, LDS Class Discussions with Kevin Hinckley and hear the uh, just the audio portion of that and listen while you do the dishes uh, or, or take a walk. So thank you in, for all of the ways in which you're connecting and we're uh, doing this together. So off we go. Now, I find it interesting that in in our um, class or in our understanding as members of the the church, um, we are able to uh, we have a we have a a uh, narrative that we tell that defines really kind of who we are, uh, and th this narrative includes. Uh, understanding uh, storylines about Joseph Smith and the first vision. It includes things like uh, the gold plates and Moroni and the translation of the Book of Mormon. That's our startup narrative. And when we're trying to explain to people who we are, that's the narrative. And when we look at ourselves and who we are as Latter-day Saints, we have a shared narrative of things like Joseph Smith and hand carts and those things that make us within our within our little plot in our part of the garden this is the things that kind of uh, help us recognize one another and it doesn't matter what other ward you go to in any part of the world we tell the same stories and this is what unites us together as a brother and sisterhood uh, in the gospel in a very real sense, as we're going to talk about today, um, the ancient Israelites had the same kind of startup narrative that defined who they were uh, in conjunction to everybody else. And, and for them, that, that narrative involved uh, being able to talk about... Um, let's see, let's get that down here. This involved uh, understanding their part and, and what exactly happened in the Garden of Eden. Interesting that when we go to, a, to uh, our 
endowment uh, ceremonies that we also are looking at this creation narrative that defines really kind of who we are and, and where we came from. And these pieces, uh, but in, in ancient Israel, this is what they understood. Obviously, there was uh, Adam and then Eve, and she's going to then uh, persuade him to partake of the fruit after she has been beguiled by the, the snake. Uh, they then are going to partake of this uh, fruit, and then as by so doing, now they're going to be cast out into that lone and, and dreary world uh, where they're going to have to be able to, to make life the best they know how to do, right? So what's going to happen here is that, that there is a sense for them of what has to happen is that they're going to start, there was a creation uh, they were up on the mountain of the Lord, and uh, it's an understanding that the Garden of Eden for them was up kind of on a mountaintop because there are rivers that are coming down off of it. That puts the Garden of Eden up. It's more like a mountain of Eden is probably the best way uh, to look at that. Um, and then uh, at, they're going to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and before they're able to t partake of the tree of life, they're then cast out. They go past the angels that stand kind of as sentinels that uh, block the way back in to this path, the entrance into the Garden of Eden. Uh, and then what they're going to do is they come out. They follow uh, these rivers. There are sacred rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden, and they were going to follow the rivers out uh, because these rivers came out of that, out of that garden and, and out in basically into the world. Now, this was such a dominant part of their, how they saw themselves, uh, how they saw um, where they fit in the world, uh, and, and, for, and for a, uh, a people like the Israelites whose identity was really always based on kind of being cast out. You think that that's just drilled in for those guys, that there was a sense of being cast out as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. But you get a, a sense of them going into exile, um, into Egypt, and then finally finding a way to escape out of that so they can get back to their land of the inheritance, but they're always where out that is not the land of their inheritance, and they're trying to find a way to get back in. The same thing happens with the exile out into Babylon. They've been dragged out there. They're trying to get back. They're trying to get back to their land of their inheritance, and really they recognize they are always Adam and Eve trying to get back into the garden, back into the presence of God, and escape. The, their world and their life outside of uh, the garden. Okay. So now, now, so so, what are they going to do now? Well, the whole idea here is to how do we return? How do we get past this? And we know from a that as they would construct shrines and temples, that it was always a how do we get back into Eden? motif, 
right? And so even like the ancient Egyptians had the Omduit, which was like the Egyptian endowment, and it was this way of they would go down into the, at death, they would go down into the underworld, uh, they would have to pass by certain elements, the god Mot would weigh their heart to see if they were uh, worthy of continuing going, and then they'd rise up out of the underworld, and the symbol of that was the dung beetle, of all things, uh, coming up out of the dirt, and they have survived the trip through the underworld uh, and been able to emerge uh, out here on the other side. Now, for the, the Near Eastern people, the Israelites and the Canaanites, they would construct shrines and temples that were basically a recreation of how do we get back into, into Eden. And so what you'd get in the architecture was always this, we're going to be on the outside here, uh, we have to be cleansed by the water, uh, kind of symbolic of, of the rivers here. We're going to be cleansed, and then we're going to have to make it past the, the, the angels that stand as sentinels that guard the way, guard the path back into the holy place, Eden, and particularly into the Holy of Holies, the Tree of Life, where they would be able to live forever with God. And you got that symbolism, like I say, in Canaanite temples, and then the Temple of Solomon would uh, also duplicate that uh, as they're trying to be able to get back in. But just keep in mind that the idea is that we have been, we're on the outs, we're in the world, we're in Babylon, we have been exiled, uh, we have, there's an exodus going on, and we're always trying to get back into the presence of God. And so that's why, for instance, for the Pharisees, uh, for instance, they wanted to make sure that they doubled down on all of this stuff, making sure you do it all right, so that you're going to be capable of being able to walk back into that presence and said, since we're not all doing it right, the high priest will do it on the certain days and be able to get back in there and, and ultimately get us back uh, where, we not, where we need to be. Now, makes sense then when we start talking about um, the Book of Mormon. Uh, that you have another group of exiled people. And, and when we look at the Book of Mormon, we have to see this, especially in this first few chapters with Lehi and Nephi and Jacob, we have to see them as Old Testament people, steeped in Old Testament thought and ideas and traditions. And based on that, then they're, that's how they're going to think and respond and that's the images that they're going to look for. So let's remind ourselves, what do we know about um, these people? Well, uh, they understood that they were a broken branch of, of Israel, that they had been broken off. Uh, and, and what was going to happen here, as, as their broken branch, that means we're going to be separated from our land of inheritance. And by the way, they had an understanding, and certainly Lehi had an understanding, that even though they were being broken off, they were losing this land of inheritance very shortly, actually within just a couple of years. It was very, it was very imminent that they would, be they would be taken off to Babylon. 
that they were going to lose their inheritance. And that's why there's a certain glee uh, to Lehi who has this understanding of what's about to happen to Jerusalem. And he's going to say, say to his family, I've been given a land of promise. We're losing this land of inheritance and necessarily so. But God has been generous to us and he's going to give us a land of promise. And so we see this. He's, he's getting this land of promise. Do we, always, do we ever ask, what's the land of promise? What's the promise? You know, that you're going to be alive? Um, that you're going to make it? That you're not going to be around when the Assyrians sweep in and destroy the temple? No, there's more to that land of promise that is part of what makes this uh, wonderful. And that is that this land of promise is that even though we're kind of being exiled out, we're being led by God, but we're still losing the land of our inheritance. When Laman and Lemuel are lamenting the fact that they lost their inheritance, it wasn't just, hey, we lost our, I didn't get my room anymore or, or my little piece of land. It was like as Israelites were losing and we're being cast out and we're losing our inheritance. And that's why I say, no, we've got to land a promise. And the promise is that we will still be part of the covenant. How great. We're, we've been cast off, but we haven't been forgotten in this covenant. This remnant of the house of Israel still has incredible promises available to it that are going to, to make it. Now, Nephi is going to understand that as well when he's going to say, okay, is there a sign? How do I know that the promise given to dad will be completed? How do I know that this has actually occurred? How has it happened? Well, the spirit on, Lehi's, or on Nephi's greater vision is going to say, yeah, let me give you a sign. Here's the sign that you're going to look for. And, and here, here's what it is. In 1 Nephi 10, this thing shall be given thee for a sign. Thou shalt behold a man descending out of heaven. When you see this man in white, the Christ, descending out of heaven, that will be your sign that says you are not forgotten, you are still part of the covenant people. Now, that moment, think about that, is not an Old Testament moment. And it's not a New Testament moment. This sign is given, this, this man in white comes out of heaven, that's a third Nephi moment. That's a Book of Mormon moment. That's the sign for all of the vision that uh, Nephi will see of Jesus being uh, going forth and being baptized and being crucified and, and, and healing and everything he's going to do. It's still not the sign that means something to this remnant of the house of Israel. The sign for them is going to be that moment at the Temple of Bountiful after the, the destruction at the time of the death of the Savior that the man dressed in white comes down. And that's the moment that they have been reminded of the promise that was given to Lehi has been fulfilled. Everything we're talking about the covenant and in terms of a promise, when do we know that it actually happened? Well, we're going to know when a promise is fulfilled. And that's, that's the moment that we're looking for. Okay.
Now, apologize for my clicker isn't quite working at the moment. We'll we'll get along just fine here. Okay, now, so isn't it interesting then before they actually even are complete in the new world, now is going to come this vision and it's going to come to Lehi. And I need you to remember, keep in mind as you take a look at what Lehi is seeing, he is an Old Testament prophet with an Old Testament view with an old, with a Israelite narrative in his head that would guide the things that would mean something to him and say something to him and get his attention. And this one certainly does. So now, remember, he's going to he has a dream, he's in darkness, the spirit comes, leads him into more darkness. And then it says, It came to pass that after I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field. So, so think for a second of he's going to, to look out and he's going to see this gracious, this spacious field. And what's he going to see? Well, it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable above all other fruit to make one happy. Keep in mind there was another fruit. And, and it was the fruit that Eve partook of first and she said it was desirable and it was good for food. It was made delicious to her taste and very desirable. And in Lehi's dream, he's, he's looking at a tree whose fruit is desirable above all other fruit. This is even better than that. Now, that, by the way, that's saying something. If you've, if you've been to Israel and eaten the fruit, it is the best fruit. It is sweeter than any fruit I've ever had anywhere. Uh, with apologies to those in Washington and, and Utah and everything. Nothing beats the fruit in Israel. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with Lehi a lot on this. But in this case, he says he was eating from this tree, th this fruit that was desirable to make one happy. Now, as he's partaking of this fruit, now, now, now we begin to see something happen here. Uh, sometimes when we're looking at an at a, a image, what, there's a couple of ways to look at an image. Uh, and and that one is to look at it from an outward view. We're going to look at the whole thing, and then we're going to slowly focus in on those areas that, that we want to take a look at. The other possibility is to focus in on one little thing and then we slowly pull back and see the other elements that are as part of this image. This is one of those moments. Look at what happened. We saw a field and a tree. And then what's going to happen for Lehi is this is going to start to telescope out. And he's going to start to see elements. So picture yourself pulling back just a little bit. Because what else is there? Now, as I cast my eyes round about that perhaps I might discover my family. Also, I beheld a river of water and it ran along and it was near the tree where I was partaking of the fruit. Okay, 
pull back just a little bit. There's a river, and it's next to the tree, but there's still no family. He's still a lone man in the Garden of Eden. He's still there, okay? He's, except he's not in the Garden of Eden, okay? So it's going to pull back just a little bit more. And I look to behold from whence it came. Where'd the river come from? So picture where he is. Tree, fruit, wow, family, no, river. Where'd the river come from? So he starts following with his eyes the river from whence it came. And I saw the head thereof a little way off. And at the head thereof I beheld your mother Sarah and Sam and Nephi. So picture with him. River, follow the river, to the head of the river. Now, let's, let's keep in mind here uh, exactly what's going to happen. Okay? Now, in order for there to be a head of the river, you have to start to see the topography a little bit. So here's the field, here's the tree, and then the river is going to trace its way up, but to get to a head, to a spring, that's going to have to put the spring higher up than it's going to put the, 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 uh, the spacious field with tree. So start to picture that, okay? Now, if you've ever been to a mountain spring, if you've ever been to Cascade Springs uh, up above uh, American Fork, Utah, um, you get these mountain springs, the headwaters, the river, it comes out of the spring, and then the river, it has to flow downhill. So that puts the headwaters up here and the tree down here and the family up there. Now, if you do that, then you're going to see <coughs> that it will look, so, this is an uh, actual spring. In the, um, in the New Testament, we read about the fact that the Savior put all of his uh, disciples on a boat on the, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They sail across over to the east, east side and get up here to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was the site of an ancient spring. You can see the river that is going to flow down into the Galilee. Uh, and, and we're standing right at the spring. We're, we're standing, it comes out of a cave. There was a, there was a um, shrine to the god Pan that had been built there by the Romans. Um, but this is, this is a spring, and it's going to come at Caesarea Philippi, where the Savior, somewhere over in this right here, says, Who do men say that I am? Then it, you know he's going to hearken on the fact that he's the living water. He is the headwater. He's the spring. Okay, so again, this is this is is uh, what a spring would look like, and it, it's going to have to be in a higher element uh, situation. Okay, now and it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and and I also did say unto them with a loud voice that they should come unto me and partake of the fruit which is desirable above all other fruit. Now, if you'll, if you'll picture what's actually happened here 
is that we are seeing a recreation of the Garden of Eden story. And that is where uh, Adam and Eve were going to uh, be cast out of the garden after eating one kind of fruit. And now they're going to come down off of the mountain, follow the river, and they're going to be in search of uh, redemption. And how are they going to find redemption so that one day that they can return? Well, how did they get there? Well, that's because uh, Eve... Uh, talked Adam into partaking of the fruit. Uh, now in a kind of a reversal of that, Lehi is actually going to be at the tree and he's going to beckon to his wife, uh, to them, to say, you should come and partake of the fruit. Adam has kind of come back around uh, and now he's, he's requesting to his family that they partake. Uh, it's so Eden in, in the eyes of a, them has been fixed kind of thing okay um, so it came to pass that they did also come unto me and partake of the fruit so it worked uh, they, they came uh, they're, they're up there on top they look down the hill there's the tree there's the river they're going to then just like Eden they're going to follow the river out of that place by the headwaters only this time they're able to be introduced to a tree that is more desirable than and anything else and and the father is able to present that to his family uh, and they, they enjoy it now as we know here's the problem the problem is is that not all the family uh, is there and 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 the frustration for that is going to be the fact as they get, um, they get a sense that, that Nephi is told that what is this fountain? Well, the fountain is the living waters, and it's running to the tree of life, which waters are representation of the love of God. And I beheld that the tree of life was also a representation of the love of God. So even though they're, they're, they're coming down the headwaters, they're following the river, which is the, the love of God flowing down, and then here's the tree, which is a representation of the love of God. And you want your family to be able to enjoy and participate in the love of God. That's, that's the whole idea. Now, what we get here, though, is... For Laman and Lemuel, it came to pass uh, that I was desirous that Laman and Lemuel, Lehi says, should come and partake of the fruit. I got, I got Nephi, and I got Sam, and I got Sarah, and wait a minute. Wherefore, I cast mine eyes towards the head of the river, so he looks back up the hill, that perhaps I might see them. He's going to look for them. And it came to pass that I saw them, but they would not come unto me and partake of the fruit. They would not come and partake of the love of God. And they would not come and partake of this tree. Now, for Lehi, remember this whole, the whole tree of life, right in the beginning of 1 Nephi 8, he says, I have had a dream, and because of it, I'm really worried about Laman and Lemuel. 
So in, in some ways, let me tell you about this dream that tells you why it is I'm worried about Laman and Lemuel. Now, it's interesting that in our day, as we liken the scriptures unto ourselves in the way that we do it, we take a look at 1 Nephi 8 and this whole tree and say, this is all the people of the world, this is us, and we're all having to make this walk um, down the path, the iron rod, all that stuff to find the tree. And certainly it's true at that level. But what did this mean to Lehi? This story, this vision, was very, very personal for Lehi. And we're going to find out that he had some very specific ways that he looked at this. Okay? Now, they wouldn't come and partake of the fruit. Now, you would say... Just in general, why? What would cause anyone to not choose to partake of the love of God? It's the love of God. You're you're looking down there. That people are enjoying the fruit. They're they're very worshipful and grateful that they're eating the fruit. Why would you reject that? Why would you ignore that? Why wouldn't you do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. And then I ne- we need to take a look at Lehi's reaction to this. Um, one of the reasons why it is that sometimes people won't, re- they reject the love. You know, let Jesus love you. No, I don't want him to love me that much. No, please, you need to do that. No, uh, I'm not going to do that. Well, how come? Well, one of the things is a false tradition. In other words, they mistrust the messenger. You ever had an experience where you wanted somebody to do something or know something and you knew instinctively, if I tell them, they'll say no. If I tell them, they won't listen to me. So I need you to tell them. Well, why? Because they'll listen to you, they won't listen to me. I want them to know it, but they won't take it from me. Why? Because they're either not listening to me or they don't they have some beef with me or they don't trust me or something so often people are rejecting not the message but the messenger (laughs) they are rejecting the whole thing based on who's trying to tell them missionaries as they knock on doors and talk to people may have the most wonderful thing in the world they could show up on somebody's doorstep and say I have a million dollars for you and the person at the door would say Oh, I see the white shirts, I see the name tags. Not interested. No, it's it's a million dollars. Sorry. Oftentimes, a message is rejected simply because of who it's coming from. Now, this I think was certainly would be certainly true for Laman and Lemuel, and it certainly was true as they were getting information and knowledge and prophecy from Lehi. So why would they have a hard time with this? Well, let let me give you one of the the things. We have talked about this before, that just as Lehi is leaving, they are only just a few years removed from all the reforms put out there by King Josiah. 
And King Josiah had come in, remember, and uh, kind of following a little bit in some of the things that Hezekiah had done uh, and trying to keep Israel safe was one of those motivations. Uh, he declared that only the book of the law would be would be followed, and that meant no more visions and no more prophets. We're not listening to any, if anybody's prophesying, it's a false prophecy, because we're going to hold strictly to sola scriptura, solely to the scriptures, and we're not going to listen to, there is no more visions and no more prophets. And here's Lehi having visions and prophesying. <laughs> okay? There's also the destruction in Hezekiah started it, Josiah continued it to destroy uh, the Asherah or Asherah shrines. The people of Israel saw those shrines as worshiping the, what they called the Queen of Heaven, it says in Jeremiah. And they baked cakes to her and they poured libations, olive oil onto the pillars that guarded her shrine, kind of like the angels guarding the sacred place. Right, and that they worshipped her along with Jehovah. When Josiah's reforms came in, they destroyed all of those shrines. Where, well, the the symbol for Asherah was always the tree, and uh, and and that's what Baal had copied some of that. The Baal worshippers, and they had the fertility groves, and bad stuff happens there. But also there were the Asherah shrines that weren't the Baal groves. These were, these were trees that were worshiping uh, the Queen of Heaven. And those were destroyed as well. And anything that might approach or look like you were somehow worshiping an Asherah tree would be met with immediate condemnation. Because if we do, Jerusalem will be destroyed. I can picture Laman and Lemuel, even though it's symbolic in the dream, if that had actually happened. And Lehi is asking them to come to the tree and partake of the fruit of the tree. Their Deuteronomic uh, understanding of the, the reforms would say to them, you don't worship at trees. You don't worship there and you don't follow prophets who tell you to worship at the trees I can think of a lot of the reasons tradition wise that they would say we're not doing the tree thing yeah but what about you know the garden of Eden and this is going to be you know and, and they'd say okay but this is a false prophet there's Eden and dad's a false prophet he's a visionary man he's having visions therefore it's our job to do just the opposite of that now from that though two things uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll prepare to wrap up first of all what was the effect of their decision not to partake uh, of the tree. Well, he next says that he sees numerous concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led to the tree by where I stood. This comes immediately after their refusal to partake of the fruit. Now again, we can see us in here and we're those people that are coming out of that place that was a world and we're coming out of Eden, 
the pre-existence, and we're coming down and we're on our search to try and find the, the tree of life. And I think that's true. But what did it mean for Lehi? As Joseph Spencer has uh, beautifully written, and I certainly concur on this, there is all probability that when Lehi looked at this, he saw Laman and Lemuel's decision and this numerous concourse of people were the descendants of Laman and Lemuel. Because of their decision, everybody that would follow them would have the same problems moving forward. Notice that for Nephi and, and, and Sam and, um, and uh, for their mom, that they simply went from the headwaters down the hill and partook of the fruit. When Laman and Lemuel say no, and here comes this numerous concourse of people, this group trying to make their way down, now suddenly the vision pulls back just a little bit more. And now what do you see? Paths, rods of iron, mists of darkness, gulfs. Now, there's, now the water has been sullied and it's dirty. Uh, there's a great and spacious building none of which appears to have been in place until Laman and Lemuel refused. And then after that, it's now going to be much more difficult to get from the headwaters down the hill to the tree. There are too many, there are many more uh, encumbrances that they have to negotiate on their way down. Much harder. And I think for Lehi, he looked at that and says, because of Laman and Lemuel's decision, their, their descendant, their kids, grandkids, great grandkids will continue to have to battle over and over and over all of that. Well, that's, that's a that, that is directly related to Laman and Lemuel's decision. And I think that's where Lehi is truly mourning. And looking at what effect that would have. Now, that leads us to the second point of this. And I, and I think, and this is kind of that, we're trying to look at what does really all of this mean. I think it really becomes very pointed and very personal for Lehi. What is Lehi's reaction? He says, and it came to pass... Nephi says, after my father had spoken all the words of his dream or vision, he exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel. It starts with fear of Laman and, for Laman and Lemuel, ends with fear for Laman and Lemuel, and what is not being said, and their descendants. He feared what? Lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. He did exhort them with all the feelings of a tender parent that perhaps the Lord would be merciful to them and not cast them off. Think about what Lehi is looking at. And, and in his Old Testament law of Moses way of viewing the world, if they aren't coming to the tree right now, they're going to be cast off. And as a result, many of their children will be cast off. We will lose generations because of Laman and Lemuel's decisions. 
And that part is certainly true. In the Book of Mormon is a story of Laman and Lemuel's descendants struggling because of Laman and Lemuel's decision. But what's incredibly sad about this, I think, is that they would be cast off from the presence of the Lord, <coughs> and it says in another place, cast off forever. There would never, ever, ever be a possibility for Laman and Lemuel. Now, what, what poor Lehi was missing, I think, is the restoration of the gospel and, and the restored knowledge that would come with that. Does it necessarily fall that Laman and Lemuel would be forever lost? Because at that moment they chose not to accept the love of God and come to the tree and partake. Everything we teach and everything we understand about the restored gospel in the temples of our God would say no. As well as for all of those descendants. Lehi did not yet know. The Savior had not yet descended following his death into hell and opened the doors. Temples had not yet been constructed where families could be sealed forever. That the way would be open for the gospel to be taught to those numerous concourses that ended up in the gulf or lost in the midst of darkness or caught in the great and spacious building. The way would be opened up that they would be taught the gospel and would come to the beauty and the knowledge of Christ after this life. All of the things that we understand now were not available to Lehi. All he saw in his sorrow and, and the struggling as a tender parent was the possibility of losing his sons forever and losing their descendants forever. And King Benjamin struggled with that. Alma struggled with that. And most of the Book of Mormon prophets struggled with the fact that today is the, the only day where we can repent and afterwards it's everlastingly too late and there's nothing else there until we get to Third Nephi. And then you don't hear that language after that. Because the sign is given and the man comes who has come from the underworld and opened the preaching of the gospel. So, in closing, can I suggest something? I think we all have friends, family, those for whom we've mourned, who appear to be rejecting the love of God, who appear to be Laman and Lemuels that the, the love is presented and they're saying no. And it, it would be natural for a parent to worry that they have been everlastingly lost or it's everlastingly too late. Our temples tell us that's not true. Modern revelation tells us that's not true. They are not everlastingly lost. But without that knowledge then a Lehi goes to his grave fearful that he has lost them forever. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer 
that we can understand the beauty that we have and the understanding that we have and that we can read the Book of Mormon as that's what those prophets understood without the light of the gospel available to them in the present. What a joy that must be at some point for Lehi on the other side of the veil to someday find out that they are not lost and that their descendants will have other opportunities to accept the gospel. Will they have painful repentance? Yes. But redemption awaits because of what we know. I bear you my testimony that that love of the, of the Savior is available and powerful for us and I pray that we can accept that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.